Turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings 18, the ultimate focus of this chapter is on a showdown between Baal and uh, between Yahweh. That showdown is going to be represented by Elijah the prophet versus the prophets of Baal. Chapters leading in that direction. But prior to that showdown, there is another story that occurs within the greater story, and that is this. It's the story of God's faithful servants. More to the point, it's the faithful of God's faithful servants living under the reign of an evil king living in an evil world. These servants of God, we'll see in this chapter, show us how it's possible to live within this evil world system, controlled by Satan, with difficult circumstances, with evil people in charge, and yet still remain faithful to the God that we love and serve. We can do that with God's grace. Of course, it's also important to understand that the ultimate authority in this world is not Satan. It's not evil people. Although it seems at times they're in control, they're not ultimately in control the ultimate authority over the world is God. And that's where we want to start tonight. Number one, God's sovereign authority. God's sovereign authority. Look at verse 1. Now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show, go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. So Elijah went to show himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria. After many days, remember in chapter 17, verse 1, Elijah said, No more rain except according to my word. Maybe three years, maybe more have passed at this point. And after many days, it says, maybe even after a thousand days, possibly, this takes place in chapter 18, based on the third year since, and also the New Testament references the three and a half years of uh, no rain. Maybe even over a thousand days we're talking about here, a good while. However the timetable works out, it's a long time that we've had a drought. People are starting to get desperate in this drought. There's a great severe famine, it says in verse 2, very severe People are getting desperate. We're going to see in a little while just how desperate they really are. But as I was reading this, a question came to my mind. Why is it that the Lord is ready to send rain at this time? Why is it? There's no repentance. Nobody's repented of anything. Uh, Ahab has certainly not changed his mind about anything. He's still worshiping Baal. Jezebel has not shown any evidence of, uh, of uh, a, you know, a meek and contrite spirit. She's not come to the Lord and repented of anything at all. In fact, she's gone on a rampage of evil. Look at verse 4, beginning verse. Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord. That's not repentance, is it? Just the opposite. Now, we do know that Elijah prays at some time for rain. Uh, as he prayed, it would not rain. James, remember James chapter 5, verse 17 and 18? Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again. And the sky poured rain, and the earth produced fruit. So the Lord answered the prayer of Elijah. And, but when he prayed, we don't know for sure, but this prayer is incorporated, as we said that time. We talked about that into the overall purposes of God, right? But I think we have to consider this statement in chapter 18, verse 1, as simply the sovereign purpose of God. God decided it's time for it to rain again. He's the supreme authority in the world, but, and he decides when it's going to rain, ultimately, and when it's not going to rain. But also, further, I have to say, this is, a, this is a demonstration of common grace. Mike talked about common grace this morning. And here we have common grace. The fact of the matter is, with no one repenting here, God is good to the human race who are in rebellion against him, regardless of who they are. He's good to the evil. He's good to the just. Matthew 5, 45 says this. He causes, God causes his son, remember this, it's his son, right? His son to rise on the evil and the good 
evil and the good, regardless. He sends rain on who? The righteous and the unrighteous, both. The lack of rain was a punishment for the worship of Baal because they're worshiping Baal and God says, okay, no more rain for you guys, which is a severe punishment at that time in, in that culture, that, uh, that agrarian culture, right? But now the Lord has chosen to send rain. And all I can say is he's good. He's a good God in sending rain in these circumstances. It would be in his rights, well within his rights, to never send rain ever again on anybody, period. Have no crops grow and no food to eat. But he does so because he does send rain. He does these things because he's sovereign and he is good. A punishment for sin is not the only method God uses to cause people to repent, by the way, either. You know, we, we think in terms of, well, I've sinned, now God's going to punish me, right? But Romans 2.4 says this, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? Yes, God is kind, tolerant, and patient. Look at this, three years, right? Uh, do you think lightly of these things, not knowing that the goodness of God, the kindness of God, leads you to repentance? It's the kindness of God or the goodness of God that also leads people to repentance. You know, maybe someone here needs to hear that tonight. You know, maybe, maybe God is taking you, to, taking you to the woodshed because of some sin in your life, but, and, you, and you haven't repented, but yet he has been good to you in many ways, and he's been faithful to you in many ways, and yet you still haven't repented. What's it going to take? The answer is to turn back to the Lord. The answer for Ahab and Jezebel was to turn back to the Lord, but they haven't yet. That hasn't happened after all these years. No rain, no repentance whatsoever from anybody, okay? Whatever the reason that God is sending rain, we know this, he's good. Even though we don't deserve his blessings, he's a good God. Sometimes he has to dish out disciplinary measures. Now, you know, don't get me wrong. He's, he's not going to let Ahab and Jezebel off the hook. It's not going to happen. He's going to judge them. They must answer for their sins. God is, but nevertheless, God is good to the evil as well as, as the good. He sends rain on the righteous as well as the unrighteous. So the rain and the sun and the, all the elements are ultimately under God's sovereign authority. But secondly, we see God's faithful servants. Verses 3 to 16, God's faithful servants. Now, two of God's servants are mentioned in this chapter. They are, they are Obadiah and Elijah. Obadiah and Elijah. Now, there's an idea out there that I've heard for some time now among believers that we should never, ever focus on people in the, who serve God in the Bible. That should, should not be our focus. We shouldn't focus on the people who serve God in the Bible. You know, we, can't, we should never sing the hymn, Dare to be a Daniel, for example, right? We're not trying to be a Daniel, per se. The hero, they say, of every story is God. This is what they say. The hero of every story is God, not David, not Abraham, not Paul, whoever it might be. Well, I can tell you that it's never been my intention to, to make these godly people in the Bible more than the Bible presents them to be. I've never thought that way. I've never thought they need to be a hero somehow. I've never thought of it like that. Now, in, uh, in a preaching class we had in seminary, that's always a, a fun uh, task to, to do in front of people, by the way. Um, I once did a message on Daniel chapter 2. And, uh, you know, you would get critiqued by the class after that, get critiqued by the teacher. Always a fun experience, right? You always learn how rotten of a communicator you were of the Bible when, you got through, when they got through with you. Okay, maybe I should leave and never do this again, right? On this particular occasion, after I finished my now famous sermon on Daniel 2, the teacher was visibly upset. And I didn't think things had gone all that bad in that sermon. I didn't think it was all that great either. It was kind of like mediocre, or somewhere in the middle, medium maybe. The teacher was not happy with me, not at all. 
And this guy is a faithful servant of God as well, by the way. He truly is. But he asked me the question when I was through. He said very impatiently, Mark, who is the hero of Daniel chapter 2? And uh, I was puzzled as to what he was talking about. And then he went on to inform me in no uncertain terms that Daniel was not the hero of Daniel chapter 2, but God was the hero. Well, you know, the thought of Daniel being the hero had never occurred to me. And furthermore, the thought of God being the hero has also never occurred to me. Because I, hero is a term, a term we apply to people. The Lord is far more than a mere hero. He's the Lord God. He's sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. This is kind of a degrading thing to me to say God's a hero. I don't think that's a proper view of God at all. But he's the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. But here's what we must understand about this whole thing. God uses people in the Bible like Abraham and David and Daniel, and he works through them. He works through weak human vessels to show his great power. And that's what we need to understand as we're reading about these people in the Bible. We're not trying to make heroes out of them. We're trying to see how God worked through them. We want to know how God works. That's what we're trying to do, to show his power. And I believe we can learn lessons from the people that God points out to us in the Scripture. He's pointing these, out, these people out to us. Why does Obadiah get so much space in this chapter? I ask myself that question. Why is this? And I think God put this here for a reason. He wants us to learn from him. Now, he's, he's got these people not so we can create a form of hero worship. That's not the issue. The issue is how does God work through people? How does God glorify through people? How do we see, how do we see God working in his world? And so I'm going to speak of two faithful servants of God tonight. Both of, those, both of these men have their own set of weaknesses, by the way. We'll see that in time to come. But I'm going to see how God worked through them. Now, these two men are a study in contrast. They're different from each other. They're different. They're, they're, they hold different positions in life. They have different callings in life. You know, we're not all the same. We're not all the same. We're all different. God's made us all different. That's one thing we need to understand. Don't expect, by the way, don't expect your brother or sister in Christ to be exactly like you are. Some people think that. Why isn't he more like me? Well, why do we want to be like you? Or why do you want to be like me? We want to be like Christ, right? Uh, don't expect that. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, 18, God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. Just as he desired. Again, back to his sovereign purpose. The body's not one, it's many members, right, in the body? The uh, body has an ear, it has an eye, it has a foot. We're all different. God has given us different roles to, 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 uh, to function in, right? So we need to do that. We need to serve him in the capacity he has given you. I've often said this illustration because I think in terms of sports analogies, it's the only way I can understand anything in life. You know, if God has given you the job of being a pitcher, don't play, try to play second base. It's not going to make any sense. If he wants you to be a catcher, don't try to play center field. Play your position, right? It's just not about the servants of God being heroes. It's about doing what God wants us to do and letting God work through our lives. That's all it's about. So he's glorified. 1 Corinthians 10, it says this, you know, the paraphrase, don't follow the examples of evil people. And it lists all these evil people, all these evil deeds in the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 10, 11 says this, these things happen to them, these Old Testament people, as an example, and they are written for what? For our instruction, right? Upon whom the end of the ages have come. They're written to us. So we can look back and we can see how did God work through these people? What do they do? Oh, how, did, how did things go for them? What can we learn from this? So let's learn from these people in the Old Testament, good or bad or indifferent. 
Why do we do that? We want to live a life that honors God as we exalt and, and not exalt people. We're not interested in exalting anybody except God, right? And since there's so much recorded about Obadiah, I think the Lord, I was going to move on and try to cover more, and I thought, wait a minute, hold on, what's going on here anyway? Why is all this said about Obadiah? I think the Lord wants us to learn something as we look at this story within the greater story of chapter 18. So first of all, let's look at Obadiah. Obadiah, his name means servant of the Lord. And I tell you what, he measures up to that, that title definitely. There are several men in the Bible named Obadiah. Are you, you're probably thinking, wait a minute, there's, an, there's a book called Obadiah, right? In the Old Testament, I think that somebody mentioned that one time. There is a book called Obadiah. It's only one, it's only one chapter, by the way. It's very easy to read through. But th this is probably, in all likelihood, not that same Obadiah. This is probably a different Obadiah. But what can we observe, uh, what can we learn from this servant of the Lord, Obadiah, in chapter 18 of 1 Kings? Well, number one, he was a trusted employee of King Ahab. He was a trusted employee of King Ahab. In verse 3, Ahab called Obadiah, who was over the household. He's over the household. Now, He's being over Ahab's household. This is a guy who's got a high position in government, okay? Very trusted uh, employee of Ahab. He knows everything is happening in the household of, of Ahab. You might say he's the chief of staff. He knows what's going on. He's got this top position in the government. He must have shown himself to be a responsible individual to get this, play, to get this position. He wasn't trying to get it necessarily. He must have been highly responsible for Ahab to say, hey, I want that guy to be over my household because that is a position of trust. He had, to be, he had to show himself to be an extremely trustworthy individual to get this position. And so here in the highest level of government in Israel is a faithful servant of the Lord, a trusted high-ranking official, of, uh, an employee of Ahab. Now this is in a land, you understand, as we talked about in 1 Kings 16, 17, this is in a land where Baal is being worshipped left and right. They've given themselves over Ahab has, his family has, Jezebel, who came from Sidon where they worship Baal. They've given themselves over to Baal worship. They've, they're forsaking God. And, then, and yet here you have in the government, right next to this Baal worshiper, a believing saint, a man of God, Obadiah. It's like Daniel who had a high-ranking official for, it was a high-ranking official for Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon right in that position where God had him to serve him. And so Obadiah, I believe, is strategically placed there by God in what has now become a pagan land, Israel. And here he is. He's chosen for an important mission. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> then Ahab said to Obadiah, Go through the land to all the springs of water, to all the valleys. Perhaps we will find grass and keep the horses and mules alive and, and not have to kill some of the cattle. So they divided the land between them and survey it. Ahab went one way by himself. Obadiah went another way by himself. By the way, uh, let me give you a passing thought here. We learned something about Ahab here as well before we get to our point. He had no concern over his wife giving orders to kill the prophets of the Lord, verse 4. Uh, but he sure is concerned over the possible death of mules and cattle and horses, isn't he? That seems to be his biggest concern. Animals must be kept alive at all costs, but God's prophets, who cares about them, right? Let them all die. And his wife took care of that. Kind of reminds me what's happening in America today. I couldn't help but draw the, the parallel in my mind. Millions of babies being killed constantly in abortion clinics. Who cares about that? But a gorilla killed at a zoo where the, the life of a child was possibly endangered, and, he was, and the gorilla was killed, 
Everybody wants the, the neck of the zookeeper now, right? That's how America is now. That's how our society thinks. One dead lion in Africa, everybody freaks out. But baby after baby after baby after baby is killed in America, nobody cares. It's not even newsworthy. Somebody's, something's not right here, and I think Ahab has it all backwards. But to get to my main point here, that was just in passing. Ahab knows the situation is crucial in Israel. Famine is severe. It's been three years or more. They, everything's dying. There's no crop. The crops are dying and so on, and food's scarce. We saw the widow woman in Sidon last week trying to collect her last meal. It's a really difficult time. They must find food and water for the animals. The, the drought has sapped all the water out of, apparently out of the streams and the riverbeds and all the, in the brooks. The grass is dead or dying. So they undertake a search. And it's a search of crucial importance. And impar- apparently Ahab does not just trust anybody to do this. Have you noticed this? Who does this search for grass? The king himself and Obadiah of all people. Now, this is, now normally a king doesn't do things. A king's not normally out looking for grass to, for his cattle to eat, right? He doesn't do that. He sends servants out to do that kind of work. He doesn't do that. This is such a desperate situation. He himself goes, and he gets his, guess who? His most trusted person, Obadiah. Who can I go to get to help me in this? I'm going to get Obadiah. I can trust that guy. And he'll tell me the truth about everything. He trusts him. This is the most critical time in his reign. Ahab, the bell worshiper, chooses a man who's a worshiper of God to go help him in this crucial assignment of all things. What a, this, is, this is by design, by God's design, that Obadiah is in this situation here. So they go their separate ways and try to find food for their animals. Now, Obadiah is obviously a valued employee of the king. There's no doubt about it at all. And I think we can learn from that. We can learn from that as God works through us in the workplace. Let me ask you a question. In the workplace, who should be the most valued employees? Who should that be? Who should management trust more than anybody else? Who should have a reputation for being diligent, for being hardworking, hardworking, for being honest, for being trustworthy? It ought to be the followers of Christ more than anybody. It should be just something that is a given. We should, work, we should be that testimony in the workplace. I tell you what, we talk about witnessing to people. You want to witness to people? You want to witness to your boss? Work hard for your boss. That's going to speak louder than anything else. No, we believers should be the, we should be those who get to work on time, right? That's a challenge, right, for some people? We should be those who get our job done. We should be those who are counted on, the, the boss can count on to get the work done. We should do it with a good attitude also. How do we do this? Well, you say, I don't like my boss. Well, how about your ultimate boss? Do you like him? Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for who? The Lord rather than for men. He's the ultimate boss. And he's a good boss, by the way. You know, we should, we should work, do our work diligently and with right attitude, by the way, not a complaining spirit. It's so easy. I know how it is. It's so easy to complain on the job about everything under the sun, right? The people you work with, the boss, the workload they give you, other people, and so on and so forth. It never ends. Job conditions. But we don't do, we, believers don't do that with a complaining spirit. I believe the Lord had Obadiah in this position for a special reason. Secondly, not only was he a trusted employee of King Ahab, imagine working for King Ahab, by the way. You want him for an employer? Secondly, he was a man who feared the Lord. Feared the Lord. Look at verse 3. Ahab was called, Ahab rather called Obadiah, who was over the household. Now look at this next statement, parenthetical statement. Now Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. 
Think about that. Obadiah feared the Lord greatly. Verse 4, for when Jezebel destroyed the prophets of the Lord, Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water. Obadiah's commitment to the Lord was not half-hearted. Whatever anybody may tell you about this passage, not half-hearted. He feared the Lord how? In what manner greatly, right? He was a follower, a true follower of Yahweh. In Israel at that time, that was very unusual. People weren't, you know, the majority of people weren't doing this. He's in the minority. And he proves that he fears the Lord by his actions. Now, we don't know when this happened, when Jezebel put these prophets to death. We don't know the circumstances. We don't know how many people she put to death. It could be she put them to death because they stood up against idolatry, and she said, okay, I, I'm not having this, and she killed them. It could be that they, they simply committed the crime of being a prophet. And so she got them and, and put them to death. But when this happened, Obadiah was able to save a hundred of them from death. He gets, sneaks them, he hides, hides them in a cave, sneaking 50 at a time into a cave. See, the area they're in, Mount Carmel, the range there, has over 2,000 caves. So it's pretty easy to hide somebody, and that's what he took advantage of that hiding place. And even with this drought, I don't even know how, how he did this, I don't know. He managed to get them some water and bread. Where did he get that from? I don't know. He did it. How did he get away with getting that even? He's over the household, yes, but it's very difficult. But you have to understand that what he did was that great risk to himself. He risked himself, as Paul would say, some of his workers risked their own necks for the gospel's sake. He's risking himself for this. If he found out Jezebel, what do you think she's going to do? Have him put to death also. You know, the account reminds me of Corrie Ten Boone and her family. You know, they had, her family had hundreds of Jews from the Gestapo during their time until they were finally caught and arrested. Obadiah was not caught. He was never caught. But here's a man who clearly fears the Lord. You know, the fear of the Lord, uh, what is that? It involves a, a reverence for God, an absolute awe of God, as well as a hatred for what he hates. We love what he loves. We hate what he hates. We have a reverence for him, a deep and abiding reverence for him. So the person who fears the Lord will shudder at the very thought of displeasing him and will, will pursue a mindset of trying to please him in all respects. You know, the fear of the Lord will drive you to do things you would never normally do, never in the service of God. And it will drive you to do things even if it involves great risk. That's how a believer should think. You know, if we have a high view of God, we're going to fear the Lord like Obadiah did. It shows me Obadiah had a high view of God, by the way. And let me say this also. I thought of this as I was looking through this, chapter 17 and chapter 18, thinking through both of them. As we, as we look through chapter 17 and 18, we find here also the mystery of God's providence. It's a mis mysterious thing, God's providence. None of us can, there's nobody that can figure this out. Think about this for a minute. God spared Elijah in chapter 17. He hid him in a lonely place where ravens fed him. In fact, Elijah spent more time during that time in his life with the ravens, more time with the ravens than he did with anybody in Israel. God took care of him. The Lord sends him out of the country and keeps him alive by means of a widow, right? He does that for Elijah. But God allows several of his prophets to die as martyrs at the same time. On the other hand, he uses Obadiah to keep 100 prophets alive. So how do we explain why God allows some to die and some to live? And the answer, God only knows. It's the mystery of divine providence. We don't know the answer to it. But clearly, Obadiah was a man in whom God worked to bring about the fear of the Lord. 
Number three, Obadiah understood the gravity of his position. He understood the gravity, the seriousness of his position. Look at verse 7. Now, as Obadiah was on the way, behold, Elijah met him. Obadiah is out there trying to find grass, okay? And a surprise, Elijah the prophet meets him. And he recognized him and fell on his face and said, is, that, is this you, Elijah, my master? Shows respect for Elijah. He said to him, it is I. Go and say to your master, Ahab, behold, Elijah is here. He said, wait a minute, what sin have I committed that you are giving your servant into the hand of Ahab to put me to death? As the Lord your God lives, there is no nation or kingdom where my master is not sent to search for you. And when they said, he's not here, Elijah's not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear that they could not find you. And now you are saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah's here. It will come about when I leave you that the spirit of the Lord will carry you where I don't know. So when I come and tell Ahab and he cannot find you, he will kill me. Although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from my youth, has it not been told to my master what I did when Jezebel killed the prophets of the Lord, that I hid a hundred prophets of the Lord by fifties in a cave and provided them with bread and water? And now you are saying, go say to your master, behold, Elijah is here. He will then kill me. Now in God's providence, it was seen that it is here that Obadiah meets Elijah before Ahab does. And he wants Obadiah to tell Ahab, I'm on my way to meet Ahab. Behold, Elijah is here. I like that statement. Well, that gets the quieter reaction from Obadiah. He says, we've been looking for you everywhere, all over the place. Verse 10 again. There's no nation or kingdom where my master has not sent to search for you. When they said he's not here, he made the kingdom or nation swear they could not find you. Now, you know what? There's no extent to which evil will go to fulfill its purposes. If it, have, if it takes them going all over the world to fulfill its purpose, evil will go that far. According to this statement, Ahab searched far and wide, not only in Israel, but in many nations surrounding Israel. And if Elijah could not be found in that given nation that he went to search in, he made that nation swear, you better be telling me the truth. In other words, it's a veiled threat. I'm coming, after, I'm coming back to get you if I find out he is here. He's, he's just taken up. He's completely taken up with the fact that he must get Elijah. In other words, uh, and, uh, you know, I wonder also if uh, when, when Elijah was inside north of Israel, if he went there to look, just right north of Israel. I would think he would went there, right? But he didn't find him when he went there, or, or nobody told him he was there at any rate. Um, you know, had they post offices in those days, his picture would have been plastered all over the post office with, under the, with the caption, wanted dead or alive, right? I mean, he's the most, most wanted man in Israel at this time. Welcome to life under an evil ruler. Proverbs 29.2, when a wicked man rules, people groan. When a wicked man rules, people groan, especially do the righteous groan when they're under attack or their principles are under attack. How many times have we groaned again and again? I've heard you talk about it. I've talked about it. when wicked people pass laws and ordinances and so on and so forth, in the country that is opposed to the Bible. How often we have groaned over these things. This is what Elijah and Obadiah lived under, this kind of rule. Obadiah says, what if I tell my master you're here and then the spirit of the Lord carries you away and I can't find you, then I will die. Why did he say that? Well, Elijah kept disappearing. He was in the, you know, east of the Jordan with the ravens. Then he was sent out of the country. Nobody knew where he was. They were all over the place looking for him. Nobody could find him. And so Obadiah thinks, hey, you're telling me you go see my master and say, Elijah's here? I'm pretty sure when I come back, you're not going to be here. And he's going to think I'm lying. He's going to kill me. 
Obadiah was afraid, it looks like. Is this the attitude of a God-fearing man, one of fear? This is a God-fearing man, right? You know, th there was a man named F.E. Meyer back in the day, a pastor and evangelist uh, around the time of D.L. Moody, who wrote a book about Elijah. He said in it, his view was that Obadiah basically was a compromiser for several reasons. He chose to work for Ahab, he says. Uh, he says Obadiah should have chosen a, sa a sacred career instead of a secular one. He said Obadiah should not be serving an evil king, an evil king like the evil Ahab, worshiping Baal. Meyer says that the text keeps referring to Ahab as Obadiah's master. And so Meyer says his Clearly, Obadiah's uh, uh, loyalties were divided between God and Ahab, not really committed to God, kind of half and half. And finally, Meyer says this about Obadiah. Though a good man, Obadiah a good man, there was evidently a great lack of moral strength, of backbone, of vigorous life in his character. So Meyer kind of sees Obadiah as a kind of a coward, not committed to God fully as he should have been. Let me ask you a question. Is that how it is? Is that what this text is saying? Now, with all due respect to F.E. Meyer, who was greatly used of God back in his day, by the way, that is not how the text presents Obadiah. It's not presented that way. He's presented in a positive light. First, I hardly think that Obadiah chose to be the king's, uh, over the king's household. It was more like the king chose him, and he couldn't say no to the king, I'm pretty sure. Kings chose people. They didn't choose the king, right? They didn't choose positions. And uh, nor, do I th nor do I think that a sacred career was necessarily available to him. What, he, what was he doing? Thinking about going to seminary? Training for the ministry? And ah, he decided on this other career under King Ahab. You know, I think it was God that put him in this position under this so-called secular position as Meyer says, why did he choose secular over sacred? Well, you know, uh, it's not a sin to work a secular job, by the way. Certainly not a sin to work out there in the world. God needs a witness out there in the world, right? He puts us out there in different places. Why? so we can be a witness for Christ. And, uh, certainly Obadiah did nothing wrong in this. He is being, the best of his ability, a witness for Christ, I believe. Nor do I think his, his loyalties are divided in the way that Meyer thinks. Obadiah, first, his first allegiance is to who? It's to God, right? He fears the Lord how? A little bit? Greatly, it says. Feared him greatly. And he just demonstrated his fear of God by hiding the prophets in a cave. That's a commentary from the text. The text says this about him. It says about him, Obadiah greatly feared the Lord. So guess what I take from this? Obadiah greatly feared the Lord. <laughs> and in verse 13, Obadiah backs it up with his own personal testimony. Don't you know? Has anybody told you? I don't know who told him. Who would tell him this information? But maybe another prophet, one of the hundred I saved. Has anybody ever told you that you're trying to get me killed? I'm the guy that, that saved 100 prophets alive. Does anybody, don't you know this information? He gives his own testimony here. Was Obadiah afraid? Yes. He worked for a heartless employer who would kill people. And his boss, the boss's wife was even worse. She definitely killed people, right? Let her find out about that. His neck's on the line then. Let me ask you another question. Would you be afraid in those circumstances? You're Obadiah. You work for King Ahab, the evil King Ahab. Would you be afraid? You know, I think I'd be on my guard if I worked for this guy. I'd be watching him day and night. You know, even the bold, the absolutely bold, courageous Apostle Paul experienced fear on occasion. You remember the time in Corinth? Love this verse because it, we can relate to Paul now. Acts chapter 18, verses 9 and 10. 
He's in Corinth, Paul is. The Lord said to Paul in the night by a vision, do not be afraid. Suggesting what? He was afraid, right? God says, don't be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Suggesting what? Paul was silent, not saying, not doing his job properly at the time because he was afraid. He says, don't be silent, for I am with you, and no man will attack you in order to harm you. Do we think that Paul was a compromiser because he had fear? He was afraid? You know, the thing to do with fear is to trust the Lord, right? We know that. Elijah does not, re- and by the way, Elijah does not rebuke Obadiah either for his fear. He doesn't say anything about it at all. He doesn't say, yeah, what's wrong with you? Why don't you just trust God? you got a problem, a spiritual problem. He didn't say any of that. He just says, I'll be there. Don't worry about it. I said I'm going to be there. I'll be there to meet your, your master. You know, uh, Elijah knows how evil Ahab is. He knows who this guy is. You know, the faithful servants of God are not all alike. Not all alike. Obadiah is not a prophet. Elijah is a prophet. Obadiah had never seen any miracles. Elijah does see miracles, right? Was Obadiah fed by ravens? No, he never saw that happen. Elijah saw it happen. Uh, Obadiah had to feed 100 prophets in a cave secretly, or his life and the life of the prophets would be snuffed out. That didn't happen to Elijah. Elijah's not even in the country half the time. You know, I, I, he's, Obadiah's got a very tough job, as a matter of fact, a very tough, tough job. He's, he works for a very demanding employer, toughest employer in the country of Israel, and uh, an employer who hates God with all his heart and worships Baal. And so as a result, Obadiah walks a very fine line in his job. Walks a very fine line. He's got to be harmless as, as a dove and wise as a serpent, right? Like Jesus told the apostles to be. And when Obadiah shows up at work on Monday morning, punches the time clock, he's got to see uh, Ahab. He's got to talk to him about the business of the day. And he probably, he may see him every day and discuss the business. Elijah's seen Ahab how many times so far? Once. He doesn't live with this situation. Obadiah does. God kept Elijah away from the scene. Obadiah may see him every day. He's got to deal with him every day. And Spurgeon had a great comment about this passage. He realized the same thing. He said this. It was a great thing for Obadiah that he could manage Ahab's household with Jezebel in it. And yet, for all that, win this commendation from the Spirit of God that he feared the Lord greatly an awesome thing. I think Obadiah is doing a great job, as a matter of fact. Let me ask you a question. Like Obadiah, do you feel any tension at work as a Christian? Do you feel a tension when you're at the job? You serve God, right? The majority of the people at work don't serve God. They're cursing, they're swearing, they're saying a bunch of stuff. They have no regard for the things of God. Your boss may be a completely godless person, doesn't care about any of that at all. They may ask you to lie to the customer for them. Let's tell the you know, tell this person a lie, whatever it takes, just get them off my back. You ever had that happen to you? I've had it happen to me. They may frown your witness, but as a believer, your first allegiance is to who? To the Lord, right? So you're walking, you're walking this line all the time of, of tension, and you must work as unto the Lord, and you have a burden for the lost at work, and so you want to witness to them, but you, have, you must use witness, wisdom in how you witness to them and how you go about it and when you can do it. And you don't want to rob the, your employer's time by doing that on the job, right? You have to be careful about these things. And so you seek opportunities. You seek the right moment, but you do so with this tension always, you always have at work. You know, I don't think Obadiah was an Elijah. He was not, certainly not Elijah. Now, he went about his business quietly. 
Uh, I think the Lord works through his quiet people and his loud people, okay? I think he works through both, introverts and extroverts. I don't, everybody's not the same. Our job is to be faithful to him, right? In the position he's put you in, be faithful to him. Everybody's not an Elijah. And Obadiah understood well the gravity of his position. He walked this tightrope all the time. But I believe he was wise in how he handled it. Number four, he committed himself to God when he was young. You see that in verse 12 as we were going through? Look at verse 12. It'll come about when I leave you, the Spirit of the Lord will carry you when I, where I do not know. So when I come and tell Ahab he, and he cannot find you, he will kill me, although I, your servant, have feared the Lord from what? From my youth. From my youth. Obadiah has, in all probability, been serving the Lord for a long time, maybe many years. He said, from my youth, giving us the impression it's been a long time. You know, it's a great thing to fear the Lord from your youth, isn't it? First of all, you're able to glorify God for a longer period of time in your life. And think of all the misery you avoid if you fear the Lord from your youth. Think of all the misery you pass and, and avoid. And I'm sure many here can say, what, amen to that, right? It's very important, so important for our young people to come to the Lord. We talked about that this morning in the baby dedication. Not wait until they're older and hardened in sin. This is a great burden we have for this church, by the way. I, I said in Sunday school a couple weeks ago, the greatest burden, I believe, in this church right now is not, there's always something going on, right? I think the greatest burden, the greatest prayer request we should have in this church is for the salvation of our young people, our children and young people, without a doubt. There's so many of them, right? You know, you think of Timothy, Paul's assistant. He became a man of sincere faith, it says in 2 Timothy 1. But who, was, uh, who, was, who influenced him? His grandmother, right? His mother, they were people of sincere faith first, and they, they, first, and they influenced him. From a child to know the, the scriptures, right? No salvation, 2 Timothy 3. We must pray. We must instruct that our children and live towards that end of, hey, we've got our mission field right here in front of us, right? We've got a mission field out there, but we've got one in our home too, our children. First and foremost, that's our first mission field. And, you know, we, we've got to pray that they'll come to Christ and learn to fear the Lord from their youth. Well, that's one faithful servant of the Lord, Obadiah, a God-fearing man in a difficult job. Now, quickly, secondly, Elijah. just want to make two points about him. Elijah is a faithful servant of God. Number one, he lives under the authority of the word. We said this last week because it was the same story last week or the week before, whatever week it was. He lives under the authority of God's word. Look at verse 1. It happened after many days. The word of the Lord came to Elijah saying, go show yourself to Ahab. And, and then it says he goes and shows himself to Ahab. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Do you recall chapter 17, verse 2, it says what? The word of the Lord came to Elijah, right? Chapter, verse 8, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. It's an ongoing pattern in his life. The word of the Lord is coming to him all the time. He doesn't live by, he doesn't operate on the basis of hearsay. He doesn't operate on the basis of feelings. He patiently waits for the word of God to come to him to provide guidance. As an Old Testament prophet, he didn't have completed revelation. As I said last week, he's getting direct revelation from God. We don't have that situation today, okay? We're not Old Testament prophets. We're not New Testament prophets. So what do we do? What we, what we do is open our Bibles and see what God has already said. You know, it's not that we are waiting for a word from the Lord these days, but rather that the Lord is waiting for us to open the word of God and read it, right? That's what we need to do. He's waiting for us. In like manner, Elijah, once again, like in chapter 17, not only hears the word, he obeys it. God says, do this. He does it. doesn't even question it at all. And so Elijah, you know, uh, you know, he did this, and that's the same order in chapter 17. Elijah hears God's word. He obeys God's word. He lives under the authority of the word, as we should. 
Number two, Elijah accepts and completes the tough assignments given him by God. He gets a very tough assignment. Think about this. Go show yourself to Ahab. Well, that's almost a death sentence at this point. He's basically saying, you're next on the line now. You're going to go see this guy who's about ready to kill you right now. Very tough assignment. Ahab's very unhappy with Elijah. The famine's very severe. This is not an easy assignment, but does Elijah seem bothered by any of this? doesn't seem to be phased. He says, you tell him, behold, Elijah's here. That's the message I got for you to tell him. No anxiety. He's very bold. He confronted the king once. He's going to do it again. You know, there's a definite contrast between Elijah and Obadiah. Definite contrast. Elijah is the bold prophet of God who tells Ahab, there's not going to be any rain except according to my word. And later in the chapter, he mocks the prophets of Baal. Very bold. Obadiah, on the other hand, he's cautious, calculating, even fearful, quietly working behind the scenes, yet one who greatly fears God, it says. You know, we tend to look to the fiery and bold Elijah, and we might think that the Obadiahs of the world are kind of playing second fiddle in the kingdom of God, don't we? Well, this guy's not like this guy. He's not as great as this guy. And I don't think the Lord sees it that way. I think for every Martin Luther, there's also a Philip Melanchthon. We don't know about him, do we? We know about Martin Luther. In fact, we sang his song tonight. We don't know about Philip Melanchthon, do we? Why don't we know about him? He wasn't fiery like Martin Luther was. But, you know, Martin Luther knew about him. In fact, Luther said he's indispensable to the Reformation and himself, he said. Melanchthon was Luther's close associate. Very unlike Luther, by the way. Luther was fiery, confrontational, strong personality, got mad at people even, lost his temper, lost his patience. Melanchthon was sensitive and very scholarly, yet vital to the Reformation nonetheless. You know, the work of God is never done by one person, no matter how famous he is, it doesn't matter. It's always done by what? All of God's people, right? Together. That's what a church is. We'll always be in need of Obadiah, just like an Elijah. Always. Both of them. Church has as much need of faithful employees at work and faithful employees at, at school as a faithful pastor behind the pulpit. The need is just as great. The church has as much need for people who never set foot in the limelight but yet pray for their church as it does for deacons who are known by the congregation. There's as much need for the nursery worker in the back who nobody ever sees as there is for the Sunday school teachers out front. God needs all his people. There's, he, he uses all his people. 1 Corinthians 12, 18 again says, but now God has placed the members, each one of them. You get that? God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. However God uses us is his business. Whatever capacity he puts in, that's his business. It all boils down to this. In a difficult world, world filled with evil, uh, influenced by Satan, God is simply looking for faithful servants. Are you tonight faithfully serving him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight again. We just pray, Lord, that you'll help us to be faithful to you. Lord, we know that it's not about us, it's about you. Uh, we pray we'd exalt you in all that we do, seeking to glorify you in all the work that you would have us to do for you. We pray you would be exalted and lifted up. We do pray for the children of our church, Lord, that you would be good to us in saving them from their sins, of showing them the need for the gospel, of bringing them to Christ. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.